Okay. We're going to jump into Exodus. So reading Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 through to 8. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome. I'm Jeremy, I'm one of the leaders. And uh, we're now in week three in our series in Exodus. And as we said at the beginning of this series, and we'll reiterate week after week, our hope is that this is the most encouraging series that we do, that as you see the story of Exodus, that you won't just see an interesting story or a story that you may or may not have grown up familiar with, but that you'll see God's very character revealed through this story as it unfolds. And the the one idea, I guess, that we are being introduced to in this part of the story is is probably what I'd like to describe as the difference between cat theology and dog theology. Just to get a quick show of hands, how many people here are dog people? You would identify as a dog person. How many are cat people? Is anyone who's going to call it that you're both? Okay, indecisive, but fine. For, um, for cat people, this might sting a little, but I, I, I can very much say that I'm a dog person. And also, like, uh, middle to large-sized dogs. I feel like dogs under a certain size should be just swept over into the cat sort of category, right? They just, their behaviors and things seem to associate with them. But I've heard someone describe it this way, that the difference in mindset between a dog and a cat is this, that a dog will think, my master feeds me, cares for me, looks after my every need, they must be a God. And a cat thinks, my master feeds me, looks after me, cares for me, and my every need, I must be a God. <laughs> and that's the subtle difference between two of them. Now, some people have also said, well, dog people are therefore more narcissistic because you like an animal kind of deifying you as like this grand whatever. But <laughs> look, the debate can go on forever. But you kind of get the difference in subtlety between those two things. It's the same actions to both interpreted in a different way. What is the central reason that God does absolutely everything that he does? At the very heart of God, what is the driving motivation for every single action that God does, as is revealed through Scripture? His central concern is for his own glory. And that may be new to you or that may be familiar to you, but I remember there was a time when it wasn't familiar to me and where I had a sudden realization. We are on the bus coming back from a youth camp and I was just talking with a guy who was driving the bus, a friend, and he, he is known for dropping huge bombshells in conversation and then just leaving it, and this was one of those times. We were talking about, I think it was a talk I'd been listening to recently, 
where the, the speaker had given the illustration of the gospel and what it means to be saved, kind of like this. He said he'd been to a, a house auction where the house was a run-down, just rubbish you know, piece of property, and, um, and it went for millions of dollars, as they do in Sydney. And he was saying, um, when he looked at it, he's like, the house is not worth that much. But then he thought, well, a house is worth whatever you pay for it. And then he made the illustration, you know, we are worth whatever someone would pay for you. Jesus died and spent his blood for you. Therefore, you are worth that much to God. And I said this to my friend, and he said, yeah, I don't really think the gospel's like that. I think the gospel is meant to demonstrate the worth of God more than ours. And then he just left it. He went on thinking, I don't know what he went on to think about, probably like, how do they put air in bubble wrap or something? But he went on with his life. But I was there just like, it just, it, it, it just started turning over in my mind. And it's such a subtle distinction that actually the central purpose of the gospel is not that it primarily demonstrates our worth, but God's worth and his commitment to his glory. It is the case that God is 100% committed to demonstrating his glory in any and every action. And what we're going to see in this passage is what happens when the most powerful man on earth is committed to belittling the glory of God and God is committed to demonstrating his glory despite him and through him. And what we're going to see is how God is sovereign over evil for his glory. And what happens when a good God who is committed to his own glory rules over an evil situation. And so I'm going to pray that whether or not this is new or familiar, that we would see what God has to reveal to us in Scripture today through His Word in Exodus. Let's pray. Father God, we praise You that You are glorious beyond measure, that You are the one who rules over all things, that You are uncontested in power, that You are unmatched, that You are committed to demonstrating Your glory and to your people glorifying you as you are, as our great God and Savior. And Father, we pray that we wouldn't miss this, but also that it would be our great comfort in a world that is full of wickedness and evil and every commitment to belittle and to hide your glory. And Father, we pray that we would trust in you more deeply after having encountered you through your word today. Amen. Well, to fill you in on where we're up to in the story... In case you haven't been with us over all the weeks, we are now in, in chapter 4 of the book of Exodus. And what happened is at the beginning, this uh, nation of Israel has been growing and growing over 400 years to the point where they are a massive threat to Pharaoh and his empire of Egypt, or at least he considers them so. So he decides to suppress this people under cruelty and slavery. He even, he even tries to and eventually commits acts of horrendous murder, committing to kill the firstborn son of every Hebrew. But through this process, God actually raises up Moses, a man with, through whom God is going to contend with Pharaoh and ultimately defeat him. But Moses, as he grows up, sees one of his own countrymen being beaten by an Egyptian and he intervenes and he ends up killing the Egyptian. The next day or a few days later or a week later, we're not really told, he's sorting out a dispute between two of his own people when one of them says, well, who are you, Moses, to say anything? Are you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian? And suddenly he realizes everybody knows what happened. So he flees the country and Pharaoh finds out about it. And to fill you in on where he is, there's a couple of maps here, just to keep you up to date with your ancient Near Eastern geography. And he flees from Egypt to that red dot, which is Midian. While he's there, 
he meets um, the, some daughters of a guy called Jethro who are tending their flock. He helps them out. He ends up marrying one of them and starting a family. But while he is looking after his father-in-law's herd, he heads over to Sinai or Hebron. And that's an important place to keep in mind. It was called Hebron here, the mountain of God. Um, but later on, it's where they're going to receive the Ten Commandments. And here he encounters God in a burning bush. The bush is burning, and yet the bush is not consumed. And God reveals to him his very name and says, I am who I am, demonstrating that God will not be defined on our terms, but on his own terms. And then after that, we pick up the story with Moses going back to Midian, so this next one there, to tell his father-in-law that he's going to head to Egypt. And in Exodus 4.18, we pick the story back up with Moses speaking to Jethro, his father-in-law. And we read this. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey, and they went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt... See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I, sa- I shall say to, you, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So Moses starts over in Midian. He tells Jethro that he's going to head to Egypt. To, to, um, to speak to Pharaoh, and God says to him, look, everyone who is seeking your life in Egypt is dead. So that means the Pharaoh that we met at the beginning of the story has actually died, and there is now a new king, a new Pharaoh, who is in charge of Egypt, who doesn't know about Moses and isn't seeking his life. Moses' family is safe, and so he's about to head back to Egypt to confront Pharaoh. But I don't know if you saw it as we kind of read through it quickly, But there was a line there that if it didn't stand out to you, it probably should have. In Exodus 4.21, it says, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. That's not that exceptional. But then he says, But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Did I read that right? Did God just say that he will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go? Can this really be? And your first thought will be, well, maybe it's a translation issue. In the Hebrew, it doesn't quite read like that, but it does. It doesn't give us any wiggle room. It's quite clear. And then you think, well, maybe it's just a one-off, so it's not a major theme. But this line that where God says to Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, is repeated throughout the book of Exodus. Not only is it repeated throughout the book of Exodus, but the New Testament confirms this teaching. This isn't just something that's part of the Old Testament or something that maybe we haven't got the right angle on. In Romans 9, look at what Paul says to the church. For he, God that is, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, And he hardens whomever he wills. That's not a typo. 
That's talking about God. He says he will harden whom he will harden. So God does this? God hardens hearts? If that's the case, then how is it that God could be the judge of all people? If God is the one who hardens hearts, how is it that they would be responsible? If if he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart, how is it that he would hold him accountable for his actions? Well, Paul anticipates this question. Look what he says in just in the very next sentence. In Romans 19, uh, 9, 19 to 23, says, you will, you will say to me then, how does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Why does God harden Pharaoh's heart, according to Scripture? In order to demonstrate his glory. In order to show his righteous judgment against him. And when Paul asks the question, well, you know, if, if you say, well, then how can God be held accountable? What is the answer? He says, well, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? I mean, is this right? Are we reading this correctly? But this is the truth the whole way through the story of Exodus. God is bringing all of this about to demonstrate his glory. Look at what it says in Scripture in Psalm 106.7. It will come up on the screen for you. It says, God rescued Israel from Egypt for his glory. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. That's why he did it, to demonstrate his power and his glory. It says, God raised up Pharaoh to show his power and glorify his name. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. This is why he's doing it. Not only that, but he will defeat him for the same reason. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And that Lord, there is a name that we learned last week, I am. They will know that I am the great I am when I get glory over them. And the answer is, well, God can just do this, can he? God is God. Who are we to hold him accountable? But the question surely that follows that is, well, God who is this committed to his own glory, I mean, isn't this the kind of, of ruler that we try to avoid? Isn't this the whole problem with earthly rulers that they are all about themselves and their own glory and so they do terrible things? Isn't this arrogant that God should be all about his own glory? Maybe to put it this way, is it arrogant that the sun is the center of the solar system? It's not, is it? Partly because I realize they don't have planets, don't have personalities and neither do stars, so obviously they can't be accused of that. But the truth is, the reason that everything centers around the sun is simply because it's the largest. It is the only thing with the mass to hold all the other planets within its gravitational orbit. It's not arrogant of the sun to do that. It's simply the biggest thing. If God is the biggest and greatest reality in all existence, then who or what else could he be entirely about? 
The whole reason it's arrogant for us to be about ourselves is because we are so small and we don't deserve to be the center of the universe. But it actually makes sense that God would be the center of all things because He's the only one who has the mass to support it. But there is still a question here of the justice and goodness of God. Is what we're reading here about God hardening hearts demonstrating that God bends people's will against Him? that he forces them to reject him. I want to put clearly to you that that is not the case. And we know this because when it comes to weighing up a difficult doctrine in Scripture, the best way to approach it is, I don't like that or that doesn't sound right to me, so that can't possibly be true. Now, God is who he is. He's the great I am and he reveals himself through Scripture. And so we understand who he is through his word. And when he reveals something in his word, we weigh it against other things he says about himself to see if we're getting this right. And so we weigh scripture against scripture. And the New Testament in James 1, 13 and 14, it's very clear about God's sovereignty and interaction with his people over evil. In James 1, 13 and 14, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And so I want to make it clear that it cannot be the case that God is forcing Pharaoh against his own will to act against the glory of God. He's not actively suggesting to Pharaoh's heart to be wicked. He's not taking Pharaoh whose only desire is just to honor God and then he's bending that will back against him so that he will do wickedness so that God can just flex on him. Now, we see it even within the text. So we see it in other scriptures like in James 1, but even in the very text of Exodus, in the context, we see that God is even merciful to Pharaoh, that he warns him again and again, sends him personal warnings, and sends him miraculous signs that could be done by no other, not even his own magicians, to demonstrate that God is dealing with him personally. And not only that, but when it comes to this idea of of Pharaoh hardening his heart, we see an equal number of times that Pharaoh hardens his own heart and that God hardens his heart. But more than that, if we look through what's about to come up in the story of Exodus, it's not until the fifth plague that we get the phrase that God hardens his heart, that Pharaoh is warned and hardens his own heart again and again and again and again until... God responds to that and gives him over to it. Look at, it, look at the, the summary of the, the plagues coming up. See, in the first one in blood, we see that Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart becomes hard. In the second one, that he hardened his own heart. In the third, that his heart was hard. In the fourth, with the flies, that he had hardened his own heart. In the, when the livestock die, he hardened, his heart was hard. But finally, on the sixth plague, we see the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh again hardens his own heart and so on. We see the pattern. What this is telling us is that God was not taking someone whose only desire was to honor God and bending their will against him. What we see is someone who is set against God's will, who, who despite warning after warning, continues to reject him and do evil. And then finally, God gives him over to his own desires. To illustrate it, it's, it's not as if God was pulling Pharaoh toward doing evil, but as though Pharaoh were a rabid dog that God was holding on a leash for a time and then finally unclips him and lets him run his own wicked way. It is the case that sometimes 
in judgment, the thing that God does to us is to give us the very thing that we want, to sin and to reject Him. In Romans 1, we read that God gives sinners over to their own desires as a matter of judgment. C.S. Lewis says it in this way. He says, there are two types of people in the world. There are those who say to God, your will be done, and those to whom God will say on the last day, your will be done. And the reason we are not more sinful currently is because God is restraining evil. This is called common grace. And all God has to do in order for our hearts to grow harder is to remove His restraining grace and to let us to do what we want. And here in this passage, after warning Pharaoh time after time after time, He gives him over to his own wicked desires and lets him follow through on them. This is what it means to harden the heart. God does not have to intervene in order for sinners' hearts to grow hard, but He does in order to restore us back to relationship with Him. And here... Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And so Pharaoh, like a rabid dog, runs after what he desires, his sinful desires. And we see this in, this, in Exodus 5, starting at sentence 1, look at what happens. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make, bricks as, uh, to make bricks as in the past, but let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks they made in the past you shall impose on them, and you shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier, be work, laid on, let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh. They say, we've met with God, and he's saying, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, I don't know anything about this. I know nothing about this, God. In fact, you know what? You guys obviously have way too much time on your hands to come up with these kind of conspiracies and ideas about leaving Egypt so that you might worship your God. I'll tell you what I'm going to do about that. I'll make your work even harder. That way you'll have no idle time to, to do all this kind of stuff. And so he says to them, now they're going to have to keep making the same number of bricks that they were always making, but the raw materials will not be supplied to them. So they'll have to go and source their own materials and make the bricks and make the same number of bricks that they were doing. And over the next few chapters, everyone gets embroiled in this. The slaves are pushed even harder. Even the taskmasters and the Egyptians over it are held accountable to it because Pharaoh has set an impossible task trying to keep the same quotas whilst doing double or triple the work. And instead of repenting, instead of hearing the voice of God, he doubles down on sin and does more wickedness and cruelty to hundreds of thousands of people. Now you might be thinking in this, well, if God is going to let him do this to demonstrate his glory, he's seeking an opportunity to demonstrate his power over Egypt and over all their empire, 
Weren't these people, these Israelites, just collateral damage in God's ego game? God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart and he's going to rescue them. But right now, because Pharaoh is choosing to reject God, things have gotten a lot harder for the people of Israel. But it's worth saying and remembering where we are in the story. This story started all the way back in Genesis, where God created a good world in which we were to live, and we rejected it. Right back here at the fall, we as humanity rejected God and have continued that pattern. And it is the case that we live in a world of our making. That the reason that there is slavery and evil is because there are sinners who have rejected God. It's a world of our making. You can think of it in this way. There was a movie years ago called um, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, which I never bothered to look up what that meant until this week. Apparently it's an Irish phrase that, that goes, may you be 30 minutes in heaven before the devil knows you're dead. Still don't know what that means. But the, the, movie, the movie is about, uh, it's a, Philip Seymour Hoffman is one of the main characters, and it's a, it's a grubby film. This is probably the only film I've ever seen well, I didn't like a single character. There are no redeeming qualities in any of the... If you just want to feel miserable after this, this is a great film to see. Because all of the characters, no one is redeemed. They're all just uh, despicable people. But the main guy, Andy, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, is a guy who's uh, down on his luck, and he comes up with an idea to rob a jewelry store. And he decides that the best jewelry store to rob is going to be his parents' store, because they know the layout of it, they know what it's like, they know what the security is, they also know that their parents are insured, so it's going to be no financial hardship for them. And so he and his brother rustle up a crew, and they rob their own parents' jewellery store. And during the robbery, as a surprise to absolutely everyone, his mum, who was in there at the time, who wasn't supposed to be, is, and pulls out a pistol, and one of the criminals shoots her, and she dies. And the whole rest of the movie is kind of unfurling, you know, the rest of those details. Sorry to spoil it for you, but it's 10 years after, and again, it is so depressing. I, I'm sparing you, right, from watching this film. But the implications that go forward is that he, he never meant for that to happen. Never meant for that to happen, and yet it did. And yet, he's still culpable. It was a foolish decision to actually rob his parents' jewelry shop. I mean, to, to, to commit an armed robbery against a shop that your own parents own, even if they weren't supposed to be there, was a, was a foolish idea. He never meant for it to go as bad as it did, but he's fully culpable for that. The idea that we would live without God may seem just like a foolish idea, and yet it has unfurled all kinds of evil on our world. We are in a world of our making. We might not be as responsible as others, for the kinds of wickedness that have happened, and yet we are all a part of it. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all not given God the glory He deserves. And we're in a world of our making. It's not the case that we are caught in the cosmic crossfire between God and Satan. No, it's God who is copping stray bullets in our gunfight. We're in a world of our making. And God steps down into our world to redeem. And this is the story of Exodus. All the chaos that is going on is because of the fall, because of our rejection of God. And God is going to save a group of undeserving people from a wicked taskmaster. And look what God says in Exodus 6, 
1 to 8, the mighty promise of what he is going to do. He says, I am the Lord. Right? We're going to hear that again and again. The great I am. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not myself make known to them. So just, just in last week's text, in Exodus 3, God has made known his name, Yahweh, the great I am. It says, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. I mean, imagine that. A humankind whom God made a creation for them to enjoy in relationship with him, reject him and end up in this, this world of sin and mess and they are in pain and still God feels their pain and their grieving. He says there, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. I mean, think of the enormous heart of God. Who of us here, if we'd had a crime committed against us or our family, would also feel for the assailant who's been imprisoned? And yet this is God, feeling the groanings of the people who had rejected him. And he's going to save them. He's going to demonstrate that he is the one who, is, who saves and who has mercy. And so he says to them, Say therefore to the people, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out with an outstretched arm. Though the people suffer now, they will see something that they never thought would happen. They're going to be saved in a way that they thought absolutely unimaginable. Whilst they were conceiving of generation after generation being enslaved for the hundreds of years to come, they're going to see something happen in their lifetime that they never believed possible. That God will use the wickedness of Pharaoh to do a mighty and amazing thing and to pour out his grace on his own people. See, a holy God cannot bear evil. And he will show his glory by using wickedness even to bring about good. He would demonstrate that he is sovereign over that. Even the very attempts to commit acts of sin against his glory, he will use to demonstrate his glory and his goodness. The Israelites are suffering, but God says, trust me, I will use this for good. I'm committed to my glory, and I will demonstrate my glory through you as I pour out my salvation and mercy upon you. When God acts for his glory, good things happen to his people. And how much more should we, on the other side of the cross, know this even than the Israelites? In John 12, when Jesus is agonizing, knowing that he's about to go to the cross and to face the wrath of God for all humankind, he says this, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. God's commitment to his glory is why Jesus went to the cross. To demonstrate his justice in that sin had to be punished and punished by death. And yet at the same time that he wanted to demonstrate his mercy to his people and so sent Jesus as an atoning sacrifice. That God might be the just and the justifier. And more than that, 
What is so incredible about the cross is in the most evil act ever committed, God used it to bring about more good than ever before. That when humankind did our absolute worst, when sin reached its utmost and actually killed God, not just in thought but in deed, God used that to demonstrate his goodness. John Piper explains it this way. He says, God did not just overcome evil at the cross. He made evil serve the overcoming of evil. He made evil commit suicide in doing its worst evil. That is what a holy God committed to his own glory can do. We are not taking stray bullets in a cosmic fight, but rather God came down into our gunfight and took a bullet for us. That Jesus, to demonstrate the glory of God, took the penalty that we deserved and it broke upon his head fully and completely. Jesus died for the glory of God. And because of this, he can be trusted. As we walk through the book of Exodus, we will see that God can be trusted to bring good out of a world that has fully and completely rejected him. When God acts powerfully for his glory, he pours out immense good for his people. And this gives us, I think, an incredible comfort that you can find nowhere else when considering the wickedness and evil that is in our world. That there is good reason to trust that though we don't know everything and though we can't know everything, that God is powerful and that he can be trusted. The best possible way I could explain it would be this. When our, our youngest, so Harper, she's now three and a half, but out of all of our kids, she was by far the sickest. In fact, she, she basically became the gateway for most bacteria that were trying to enter our family. She became the incubator. They're like, that's the easy one. I'll incubate there and mutate and then get the rest of them, right? But she, um, she had this thing. She had narrow eustachian tubes, which meant that she'd, she'd get a lot of infections and it happened regularly. But it kicked off right from the start. I think she was only two weeks old when she had her first serious infection. She had a fever over 40 and we had to take her to hospital. And I'll never forget having to take this little bundle of a child to the hospital while she's burning up with a, a temperature over 40. I remember as soon as we got there, that the, there's all these people in kind of the emergency room. And as soon as they saw we had a baby, you, just, you get rushed through. And everyone starts acting very quickly and deliberately, which is both reassuring and concerning at the same time. But one of the things they had to do was to rule out that she had uh, any kind of serious infection like meningitis or meningococcal. And in order to do that, they needed to take a, a spinal tap, so fluid from her spine. And so I remembered having to hold her while this poor doctor, I mean, I know they do it day in and day out, but while this poor guy had to put a needle in her back to extract the fluid, and she was just crying and crying and crying and crying. And of course, she's two weeks old, so I can't sit her down and say, now look, if you really understand immunology and things like that, you know, just whatever. It, there was no conversation to be had but I just had to, to cuddle her and to hold her and to, through nonverbal ways, to reassure her that her father was looking after her. And if I could have said something, it would have been along the lines of this. Look, your mom and I are up all hours with you. Your mother carried you to full term and you know, had back problems and all this kind of stuff. We did all of this. We, we feed you, we look after you because we love you. And we would not put you through this if there wasn't a good reason for it. Trust us. Isn't the cross enough that though God has not explained and will not explain, 
all the reasons that we suffer, that he can be trusted, that he is good, that it is good to follow a holy God who acts for his glory, that he is merciful, that he comforts, that he hears the groanings of his people. Remember C.S. Lewis saying, we read to know that we're not alone. Well, how much more so to read Scripture and know that we are not alone in the universe? That God knows you, loves you, and laid down the life of His Son for you to demonstrate that though we may not know everything, that God can be trusted. That He is committed to His glory and it is good. That He is not aloof or indifferent to our suffering. That we are not just pawns in a cosmic game of chess, but He knows you and loves you. And more than that, that his promises he will be faithful to right through to the end. Let's pray that God would do this. Father God, we praise you that you have revealed who you are and what you are like in Scripture. God, we just ask that as we consider these things, that we would be comforted by the knowledge that you are on the throne of heaven ruling over all things to bring them about for your glory. That you can be trusted. That you are in control and you are good. And that you will use all things for the good of those who love you. Father, we pray that we would know this truth deeply and that it may be our comfort and our assurance in difficult times. And that as we do this, that you would be glorified in us. Father, we pray that you would do this for the glory of your name. Amen.